What is up, my dudes? Welcome back to yet another episode of Olympia Oddities. So today, before we get into the episode, I wanted to share that I had my first ever guest appearance on another podcast. The podcast is called Double Jointed, and I'm on episode three, which is the uh, most recent episode. I was their first ever guest, and we talked about everything from aliens to lizard people, OJ Simpson, Rock of Love, Tom Cruise's weird middle tooth that's right in the middle of his mouth, and a bunch of other random fun stuff. I had a really good time, and I think it was pretty fun, a pretty fun, funny episode. So if you want to check that out, head on over to the Rachel's Records website at rachelsrecords223.com to find it. For today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about another mysterious missing persons case from the Pacific Northwest. Just a heads up for this one, because it does involve a child, and a small child at that, since Skye was only two years old when he went missing. Let's get into the story of the rocky relationship of his parents and how a heated custody battle could have something to do with his disappearance. So, Sky Metalwalla's parents are Julia Buryakova and Solomon Metalwalla. They're both immigrants to the United States, with Julia being a Ukrainian born in Russia and Solomon being from Pakistan originally. Julia claimed that during her childhood, she was forced to suffer shock therapy in mental institutions as punishment for bad behavior. She also claimed that she had been beaten regularly as a child, with both of these awful abusive forms of quote-unquote punishment causing lasting effects on her self-esteem. She immigrated to the United States in 1994 and met Solomon three years later. She was just 15 at the time, and Solomon was 21 and running a convenience store while she attended Bellevue High School. Like, this wasn't that long ago. You know, I know that things were different way far back in the day. It was more common for, like, teens to get married and join relationships with older guys. But please don't let your 15-year-old daughter start dating a 21-year-old. That is so creepy to me. Sorry. Just needed to be said. Um, in 1999, she graduated high school and became an American citizen, and the couple bought a condo in Bellevue, Washington. They seemed like a happy couple that enjoyed spending time together, but friction between the two was noticeable. The Kirkland police were once called and arrived to find the couple having a loud public argument in a gas station. The argument was allegedly about what their plans for the evening were going to be. During this incident, Solomon gave police his brother's name instead of his own. According to the psychiatrist Julia would later end up seeing, it's around this time when she started to realize how controlling Solomon could be, and realized that she was emotionally dependent on him. Despite these worrying feelings, they were married in 2003. The wedding was held in his mother's kitchen, and Julia later told psychiatrists that Solomon's family had given her an ultimatum. Either she married Solomon right then and there, or never see him again. She said that they claimed that he was facing immediate deportation, but were vague on the exact reasons why. Julia didn't tell her own family the conditions she had married under until 2010. In 2005, Solomon decided to convert to Christianity, and the two began attending church in Kirkland. Solomon's family wasn't exactly thrilled with this choice, and Julia suspected that they thought that she was the cause of his change in faith. She said that this caused further strain on the marriage and caused even more problems for them. In 2007, they were struck with financial problems when a deli moved in next door to the restaurant. They had their first child together this year, a daughter that they named Maylee. The recession in 2008 hit the business even harder, and they began their struggle even more financially. 
Despite this, the couple bought a new home in Kirkland for $800,000. They were still paying mortgage payment payments on their Bellevue condo as well. In 2009, they had their second child, a baby boy that they named Skye. During her pregnancy with Skye, Julia was prescribed antidepressants by a psychiatrist. Julia claimed to not need them, though. Their properties began to be foreclosed upon, forcing them to move out of their larger Kirkland house into their smaller house in Bellevue. Solomon claimed that around this time, Julia began to have severe psychological problems and an obsession with keeping the house clean. He claimed that it was so bad that he took up eating outside and sleeping on the floor in order to satisfy her obsession to keep the place clean. Around this time, they were also cited several times for violating noise regulations, including an incident when they woke up their neighbors by vacuuming after 11 p.m. Julia claimed that her downward turn in mental state caused Solomon to become even more controlling and angry with her often. Worse than just late-night vacuuming, they were both arrested when Skye was just two months old. They had left him alone in their car in a Target parking lot for almost an hour on a 27-degree day. After the police had arrived, they arrested both Solomon and Julia and charged them with reckless endangerment. The couple claimed that they were only in the store for about 20 minutes and that they hadn't wanted to wake him up from his nap. The store security footage proved that they had left him outside alone for almost an entire hour. Both of them agreed to attend a parenting class, and the charges were officially dropped a few years later. In early 2010, on her 29th birthday, Julia was briefly committed to a mental hospital. She had told Solomon that she had dreamed of killing the kids. In the mental hospital, she was diagnosed with severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. They didn't think that she was unfit as a parent, saying that, A severe form of obsessive-compulsive disorder, I do not believe that interferes with her ability to be a compassionate, effective parent to her children. Julia would later deny that this diagnosis ever even took place. Shortly after Julia was released from the facility, Solomon filed for divorce on June 4th, 2010. After they separated, she texted Solomon claiming to have suicidal ideations. She later claimed that this incident was just her trying to get his attention. She was admitted a third time to another facility, where she was found to have a score of 15 on the Global Assessment of Functioning. This suggested that she was a danger to herself and others. By the time of her release, though, her score had raised to 40, meaning her mental health caused her slight impairments. After her release, Solomon and her brother and his brother took her to the University of Washington Medical Center, where Julia voluntarily checked herself in. While she was in the medical center, the condo was foreclosed on. Solomon and the kids moved into his parents' homes in Kirkland. In their divorce filings, Julia alleged that Solomon had been an abusive partner and that she had feared for her life. In documents dated of June of 2010, she wrote that, the most most recent have been his threats to kill me if I say anything against him or if in any way I proceed with action of seeking custody of our two small children. I live in constant fear for my life and my children's life. Solomon claimed that Julia was making up her allegations against him. He also claimed that her mental health issues made her unstable and said she was incapable of keeping food in the house or letting her kids sleep in beds due to her OCD. They both sought out protection orders against each other during the, the divorce. CPS investigated a claim that Solomon had been abusive to their daughter and had struck her hard enough to leave bruises. A social worker had told the court that there was evidence to back up these allegations, and CPS launched an investigation. 
The investigation determined that the claim was unfounded. In September of 2010, Julia was given full custody of both children. Solomon didn't have any visitation rights, and she refused to let him see his kids. He continued to fight this in court and several other issues, like property that they had both owned together. She suggested that she would go without alimony and child support from him on the condition that he allowed her to move to Arizona and take the kids with her. Solomon refused to agree to this deal. Disputes over custody and visitation were drug out over a year, and in November of 2011, the court ordered the couple to a week of mediation to hopefully resolve their issues. During the mediation sessions, they came to the agreement that Julia would get full custody while Solomon would get full visitation rights. However, on November 3rd, shortly after their agreement had been signed, Julia called her lawyer and explained that she had felt pressured under the mediation, mediation session to agree to the terms and wanted to void it. On the morning of November 6th, Sky woke up sick, according to Julia. She said that she loaded him and his four-year-old sister into her car, a two-door Acura Integra. She was headed to the Overlake Medical Center in Bellevue. Julia claimed that on their way there, the car ran out of gas around the 2600 block of 112th Street Northeast. With the car on the side of the road, she left Sky strapped into his car seat and began walking with Maylee to a nearby gas station. They arrived at a Chevron station a mile away from the car one hour later. Bizarrely, instead of buying a gas, filling a gas can, or finding someone to deliver some gas to her car, she instead called a friend. This friend picked her up, picked her and her daughter up, and gave them a ride back to the car. She said that when they arrived back, Skye was gone. Julia called the police and informed them that Skye was missing, and the police notified Solomon of his son's disappearance. Searchers immediately began combing a 20-mile radius around the car for any trace of Skye, and officers immediately began doubting Julia's story. They had tested her car, and it had gas in the tank, and everything seemed to work just fine. She'd had to walk through a neighborhood to get to the, to the gas station, and had made no effort to knock on doors or talk to anyone on the street about the emergency. She did, to me, nothing that a mom worried about their beloved baby sleeping alone in a car on the side of a road would do. She'd also left home without her wallet, purse, or phone, even though she was allegedly headed to the hospital with Skye. No gas can was found with her, or near, or in the car. When they began to question her further about these inconsistencies and details that didn't add up in her story, Julia invoked her Fifth Amendment right. She also refused to take a lie detector test. She did, however, give officers access to her phone, computer, and car for a search. No sign of Skye was found at the home. Her car had been unlocked and showed no signs of forced entry. Solomon's house was also searched, and again officers found no trace of the missing boy. He took a lie detector the night of the disappearance, and the results had come out inconclusive. He took another lie detector test the next day, but the results of that test have not been released to the public by him, his attorney, or the police at this time. Police soon discovered the Target parking lot incident in 2009, where Julia and Solomon had left Skye all alone in the car for almost an hour, at just two months old. They both admitted under police questioning that they had habitually left the children alone for long periods of time. Some began to question whether or not Skye was ever actually in the car with them that morning to begin with. Drivers who had passed the Acura while it was parked on the side of the street hadn't reported seeing anything unusual around the car, let alone a small child left all alone in it. 
Julia's neighbors at her apartment complex were interviewed, and they said that she and her children rarely went out, and said that none of them had seen Skye for at least two weeks. Solomon said that the only other person he could confirm seeing his son besides Julia was a doctor at a doctor's appointment they'd had in April. Skye's sister, Maylee, however, stated that he was inside of the car that morning. The police also became aware of the fact that Julia's stories had a number of coincidences with the plotline of an episode of Law & Order SVU that had been airing in the Seattle area before Skye's disappearance. The episode is called Missing Pieces, and in it, a young couple claimed that their infant son was abducted when their car was stolen. It's later revealed in the episode that, spoiler alert, they buried their son after believing that they had accidentally killed him and made up the, the stolen car abduction story as a cover-up. The episode was first broadcast two weeks prior to Skye's disappearance, which I think is an interesting detail since Julia's neighbors at the apartment complex said that the same length of time said that it was the same length of time that it had been since they had seen Skye. Two weeks when the episode aired, two weeks since they've seen Skye, it's just kind of a weird coincidence. The episode had rerun on TV the night before Skye's disappearance, too. Through his attorney, Solomon told People Magazine that Law & Order was one of Julia's favorite shows. Julia's online presence also raised a few eyebrows with those who were investigating the case. She had a Facebook, and on it she posted tons of pictures of her daughter, but almost none of Skye. They also discovered a Seeking Arrangements profile, where she was searching for a sugar daddy to provide her with $3,000 to $5,000 a month, according to her profile. Investigators publicly claimed that they did not believe Julia's story, and suspected Skye's disappearance was the result of criminal activity. However, she was never formally declared a person of interest in the case, and they've held off charging her with child endangerment. They've held off on this charge because they would have had to prove that she had, in fact, left her son alone in the car for an unreasonable amount of time. The other reason that they held off on following through with these charges is that in case information comes to light that she did have involvement in Skye's disappearance, more serious charges would be harder to bring upon her after the lighter charges were instilled. Solomon's lawyer told Seattle Weekly that another reason they're not arresting Julia is that because if she's arrested, she'll be able to review all of the evidence that police have gathered, and neither Solomon nor his lawyer want that to happen. Two weeks after Skye's disappearance, Julia finally made her first media appearance. ABC News was able to get a hold of an email address that some of her relatives said that belonged to her, and contacted her that way. She told them that she had no idea where the boy was, and called her husband sadistic, saying that he wasn't telling the truth about himself. She refused to answer any questions about the case, saying that her lawyer had told her not to talk about it with anyone. She neglected to answer their question about whether she had run out of gas that morning or not. The network was unable to confirm if this actually was Julia, though, but Solomon told them that it sounded to him like it was um, like the way she talked, claiming that she was trying to get him riled up. ABC forwarded these emails to the Bellevue police, who said that they might be of value to the case, but did not make any further comments on them. DSHS removed Maylee from Julia's home, and she was placed into foster care. Solomon was granted visitation twice a week and petitioned the court to grant him custody. They did, after his protection order was removed, and their divorce was finally granted in January 2012. In 2014, the Bellevue Police Department announced that it had exhausted all of its leads in Skye's disappearance, and still not a single trace of the boy had turned up. Things seemed to change in the next year, when, in 2015, 
The new chief of the Bellevue Police, Steve Milet, made a public declaration asking for Julia to talk to them again. When addressing her in a newspaper, he said, I believe you hold the key to finding Sky." Milet claimed that Solomon had come forward with information that might be useful in solving the case, but hadn't specified what information he shared with them. Images of Sky that showed how he might look currently were distributed, along with the original photo of him for the fourth year anniversary of his disappearance. Around this time, it was discovered that Julia had remarried the previous year and given birth to another child with her new husband in July. DSHS workers worked to remove the infant from the household. They were concerned about her mental state and had received a complaint from the doctor who delivered her most recent baby. They also worried about the baby's father being a safety issue, as he was a convicted felon who had previously had another child removed from his home in Florida. His worrying behavior didn't stop there, and during the same month that he and Julie had married, she'd reported him to the Redmond police for assaulting her. She got a no-contact order against him, but still visited him regularly while he was in jail. He was in jail while she gave birth to their kid. They both claimed to the investigators that they didn't live together, but both provided them with the same address. At one point, Julia told, her, told them that she wasn't sure who the baby's father was, even though his name, Alan Morgan, was listed on the baby's birth certificate. In 2019, Julia once again ended up in court, this time because Alan Morgan had allegedly violated a no-contact order. During this trial, she acknowledged that she wasn't supposed to be alone with her new son without supervision of an observer. After this appearance in court, she once again refused to talk to the press. Theories surrounding what could have happened to Skye usually center Julia as being involved in his disappearance, and her complete refusal to talk to the police after the day of Skye's disappearance certainly doesn't help. Some believe that she gave Skye to someone, either earlier in the day when he disappeared from the car, or maybe even before that. Solomon is one of those who believe this theory. He believes that his son is still alive, but not in the U.S. anymore. Shortly after the doctor's appointment where Skye was last seen by someone outside of his family, Julia's estranged father had come to visit from the Ukraine. He'd been confused about the purpose of the visit at the time and told the Seattle Weekly that he wondered if the man could have taken Skye back with him. Solomon's attorney said that she doesn't believe that Skye was ever even inside the car that morning and that Julia's intense OCD-fueled cleaning of the apartment is why police couldn't find any trace of Skye. She told the newspaper that she's a clean freak and she probably bleached everything out. She said that unlike Solomon, she doesn't believe that Skye is alive. She does think that Julia is definitely involved in his death, if it did occur, but says that she does believe his death could have been the result of negligence or an accident instead of an intentional act done to harm the child. As of today in 2021, no sign of Skye Metalwalla has ever turned up. His case remains an open and active investigation. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, follow the Instagram or Facebook pages at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Leave me a positive review or tell a friend. And until next time, friends.